Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Takeshita Telephone Education Series. Dr. Bill Takeshita is the Director of Children's Programs and Chief of Optometry for the Center for the Parkway Science here in Los Angeles, as well as Consulting Director for Low Vision Training at Braille Institute. The Dr. Bill Telephone Series is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairment. The topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. Tonight, we are honored to have Dr. Cal Tawanzi, renowned pediatric retinal specialist and director of the Children's Retina Institute here in Los Angeles, joining us as our special guest. Thank you, Dr. Tawanzi and Dr. Bill. Thank you very much, Sue, and thank you so much, Dr. Tawanzi, for sharing your valuable time. I, I just don't know how. Oh, it's you always work. a pleasure, Bill. <laughs> it's good to be back. Thanks. Well, I would have to say, what time did you start seeing patients this morning? Uh, we started at 7 in the morning. <laughs> and you still have patients to see after this uh, telephone interview, so thank you very, very, very yeah, much. No really appreciate it. But uh, tonight, the topic that we're going to talk about is a very unique, interesting subject, and we're going to be talking about oculocutaneous albinism, and we're going to also talk about ocular albinism. Uh, so the first thing is, would you describe to the audience what is ocular cutaneous albinism? Okay, well, ocular cutaneous albinism is a, uh, it's a genetic disorder. Uh, there are four fundamentally different type forms of this condition that are numbered 1, 2, 3, and 4. And it's a genetic disorder uh, which is autosomal recessive, meaning that to be affected by this condition, um, you need to have inherited um, two different mutations on, on both chromosomes of the same gene uh, to have it manifest as a disease. If, if you only have it involving one chromosome that puts you in a carrier status, um, some carriers can have some manifestations, but it's not nearly as um, um, involved as when both genes are affected. And fundamentally, this is a disorder of uh, pigmentation, the melanosomes, which are um, the pigment um, aggregates in cells, are affected by this uh, condition. And so it manifests in both the skin and the eye. Um, and uh, so when we, t when we talk about the eye changes that occur, uh, it affects all parts of the eye. Um, children with this condition uh, typically um, have uh, slightly reduced vision, uh, anywhere in the range between 2040 and 2200 level, and they have very light pigmentation. So if you look at the front of the eye, uh, usually the iris um, is uh, very faintly pigmented, and if you shine light through the iris, 
um, you'll see that in addition to the pupil where the light reflects, you'll see uh, numerous uh, what we call transillumination defects, which are basically little areas where a light can, can reflect back off the retina and through the iris, and one can see that. Uh, so that's one of the features. Um, another of the features is that um, there, there's some anomaly in uh, the retina, and uh, the central part of the retina, uh, which is called the fovea, is um, universally underdeveloped, so that if you look at the fovea or image it with um, uh, like an optical coherence tomograph, you will, you will not see the normal uh, foveal depression and you won't see the um, increased number of retinal layers that you typically see in a, in a, in a fovea. Um, there are also um, abnormalities within the, the pathways uh, uh, between the retina and the cerebral cortex. So uh, normally <clears throat> when information is transmitted from one eye to the brain, it follows the optic nerve and it goes to the chiasm. The chiasm is where nerve fibers cross so that uh, typically the nerve fiber from one eye will, will cross uh, half of it will stay uh, on the same side and half of it will cross the other side, and those fibers will um, go to uh, both sides of the occipital cortex in the brain. Uh, so um, in the situation of albinism, occupantaneous albinism, the fibers tend to almost completely cross and uh, instead of crossing 50-50. And what this does, essentially, it makes uh, one, eye, one eye see the opposite brain, if you will, and, and the other eye see the other brain. And, it, and that makes it difficult to get stereopsis. Uh, and it changes the way the visual field is perceived uh, by the brain. Um, these children uh, you know, usually develop stagmas, which is um, this jerk shaking of the eyes. Uh, within, it usually comes on about two months of age um, and persists through life, although it can sometimes dampen as the child grows older and sometimes muscle surgery is required to help dampen the, the, the stagmus. The stagmus is shaking of the eyes. And there can be a null point, in other words, a, a certain direction of gaze in which the, the stagmus is uh, less active. And usually the child will pre prefer to look in that direction. And uh, when the, the stagmus is less pronounced, the vision is better. And sometimes the stagmus can get worse if, like, the child is under stress or um, sleep-deprived or angry uh, or sick uh, with, with, a, 
illness. Um, so those are uh, some of the more common features of this condition. Um, and I can go on, but I'll let you ask more questions. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. So when a baby, a newborn baby, is born uh, with oculocutaneous albinism, it's very apparent, it's very easy for the parents to see that there's something different, there's something wrong with this child. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't mention the, um, the cutaneous, uh, you know, this, their skin abnormalities as well. And, and the, the pigment within um, the hair and skin is also uh, absent. So uh, these, these children will be very lightly pigmented, very fair skinned. And when you can compare them to their siblings, they're obviously different um, if their siblings are unaffected. Um, and so, and it's, you know, it's, it's more obvious in uh, a child that comes from a more darkly pigmented race. But this, this condition can occur in, in all races. It's universal throughout the world. So the child will have very faint pigmentation on the skin, uh, many of these forms um, of, of albinism will, uh, uh, you know, associate with very easy uh, sunburns and propensity to develop skin cancer if they're exposed. Uh, they won't tan. The majority of these forms uh, won't tan normally. And then the hair is also very uh, white or very blonde, depending on which form of this condition uh, uh, you find. Uh, you know, types 1 and 2 are more prevalent throughout the population. Um, types 3 and 4 are uh, more commonly found in African uh, and Asian uh, populations. Now, what is those specific differences between one and two versus three and four, are they different genetic mutations or is the severity more intense? Yeah, they are different uh, genetic mutations uh, between the different forms. So um, um, the type one, I'm going to have to remember this, uh, it's it's a tyro it's a tyrosinase gene that is affected in type one, and there's a type one A and a type one B, and uh, the one A form is probably the most prevalent, um, and those patients t tend to have very little pigmentation. Uh, the 1B um, tends to be, they, they tend to develop some pigmentation as they grow older, so they're not quite as affected, as, as, at least in the, the skin form of the condition. Um, uh, type 2 is associated uh, with a different gene called the OCA, or Ocutaneous Albinism 2 gene, um, and then... Uh, type 3 is, uh, is the TRP 
one gene, and type four is the MATP gene. These are all, um, you know, different forms, different genes. Of the, all of these genes are involved in, um, you know, the metabolism of uh, melanin. Now, one so, of the things, Dr. Tawansi, yeah, so, that uh, I, I often read about is that in some of the different areas of Africa, children, these African children who are born with oculocutaneous albinism, they are actually even hunted. Is that correct? Wow. I wasn't aware of that, Bill. Um, but uh, I can I imagine that might be the case. Maybe you could enlighten us more on that because I, I haven't heard of that. Yeah, I believe that a lot of it was in uh, Tanzania. And some of the thoughts are that when the people who live in these communities, these tribes together, they see a black child being born, and this black child is totally white, white skin, white hair. And when they see the eyes shaking, they often feel that these children are either A, that they are evil, or B, that the blood of these children with the albinism, it's a miracle type of blood. And this blood from the child with albinism can be given to an adult who has other diseases, and they could kill these children, take the blood, give the blood to these sick adults, and they think that it would it would help them. That's... that's uh really, um, a, you know, uh, a concept that has no, you know, medical basis, obviously, and it is very unfortunate that that's happening. But, uh, you know, there are, there are forms of, of, uh, of, you know, types three and four, especially that are fairly prevalent in Africa. And I can imagine that there are tribal rituals that can, uh, lead to certain, you know, ho- hopefully these, ch- you know, children are not harmed, but uh, th- these children, you know, have have a just a simple genetic disorder that affects pigmentation. They are otherwise normal. They have normal intelligence. Um, they have normal physical abilities. Their vision is limited. Their their skin is hypopigmented. They're they're more prone to sun damage. They need to be protected from the sun. They have normal uh, reproductive capabilities, um, and you know they can function very well in society and have you know very li- uh, very little limitation outside of requiring protection from the sun and from from excessive light. They they, they tend to have photoaversion, of course. Um, they many of them have significant refractory errors. They can be very nearsighted, very farsighted, or they can have some irregular astigmatism. But outside of these issues, which can be managed very effectively, um, you know these these uh, uh, patients uh, are well integrated into society and, and can function 
normally. Certainly there's no uh, reason to uh, take their blood or do anything crazy like that. Yes, I, I agree. And it's just so surprising to me. Here we are in the year 2016 with so many different types of genetic, medical, technical advances, and there's still people who still are under these types of beliefs. But thankfully, due to you know the assistance of people from the United States and Europe, uh, these kids are, are really being protected and saved. And, and Dr. Twanzu, when it comes down to the functional vision of a child or an adult with albinism, you did mention that it is mainly just that their vision is blurry and that they're sensitive to the light. Uh, does, does the child or adult with albinism, will they eventually become totally blind by a particular age? Or no, I think that's a, very, that's a very important concept, Bill, because this is not at all a progressive disorder. So, um, you know, th- these children have... Uh, some limitation in their vision, you know, usually, in the, like I mentioned, uh, you know, in terms of acuity, it's in the range between 2040 and 2200, but uh, by no means is this progressive. In other words, they do not deteriorate over time. In fact, many of them show some improvement, the nystagmus can get better, the visual acuity can get better, and... Um, they're very good candidates for low vision aid. Um, they can they benefit a lot from uh, glasses that uh, diminish the light input. And over time, um, you know, they can adapt and they can improve their function. And they do not deteriorate clinically at all. Um, you know, they don't have a propensity for. Uh, Blinding disorders, for example, they don't develop glaucoma, they don't develop retinal detachment. Um, uh, so I, you know, I rarely operate on, on patients with albinism. Um, uh, occasionally for strabismus, primarily, or to reset the null point um, is probably the most common thing. Uh, many of them have significant refractive errors that can be corrected. And uh, that's really what we we see. And thank you for all the referrals of children you sent to our center, the Center for the Partially Sighted. But that's Absolutely. it. These these kids, they, they have a strong prescription in many cases, and we will prescribe the new polycarbonate lenses that are very thin, very lightweight, and when they go outside, they turn dark so the kids aren't sensitive to the sun. And when you meet these children, these young infants, and I'm talking about from nine months on, these kids just run and play, and they do the things that every other child will do. Oh, yeah, they're great kids. They're great patients. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you can can play with them, and, you know, they're very normal other than, you know, the slight limitation that they have with their vision. Now, uh, Dr. Twanzee, at what age do you begin to talk to your patients with albinism? These are children who might be uh, three years old, four years old, five years old, six years old. I don't know what age you find it to be so helpful to begin speaking to them about some of the things that they may hear because what I have experienced with my patients with albinism is that 
it is not really the vision that hurts them so much, but what often hurts them so much is what everybody else says or how everybody else makes fun of them or everybody else avoids them. Uh, when do you talk to your patients about some of those things? Yeah, that's, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right about that. Um, I mean, it's, it's more the social stigma that, you know, that limits them more than their actual functional limitation. Um, you know, I try to develop a relationship with my patients uh, from the get-go as I'm seeing them. And as they're growing, as they start to uh, talk and understand, uh, even, you know, say around the age of two, uh, I am, you know, trying to develop a relationship with them and, um, you know, help them understand that they're different than most of society, but they um, have, uh, you know, great potential and, you know, I'm very sensitive to these, you know, the, the ridicule that may happen. And so, uh, you know, it's hard to completely prevent that. But um, I kind of try to encourage them to, to develop um, a personality that can, you know, can kind of uh, deal with that problem. Um, I certainly talk to the family, the parents about it, and other uh, siblings and relatives and get their school teachers in uh, when they're, they get to school age. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes they, they integrate quite well and they're well accepted and they have a good group of close friends. And other times, you know, certain adaptations have to be made. Uh, I mean, certainly I've had kids who've had to change schools because they've been teased too much um, or they've got, gone to homeschooling. It's unfortunate that that has to happen, but certainly educating their classmates, um, spending some time uh, with uh, the family and with, um, you know, the, the schoolmates and the teachers, that can sometimes pay off, but, I mean, there are certain, at a certain age, you know, teenagers can be very uh, hurtful um, um, at a certain point in, in, in their, you know, their development. They can be insensitive, and we, we try, you know, we try to cope with that as, as much as possible, but you're right, it's a real problem. You know, some of the things that we have even found to be even very, very effective as the kids get to be a bit older, if they're going into kindergarten and first grade, is that we have actually gone to the school, one of our doctors, with the child, with the mom or the dad or both, and we let the child introduce himself to everybody, and, and they talk about the fact that they do have this vision problem. And even though they have this vision problem, they usually make a joke. It doesn't mean that I could sing like Stevie Wonder, but I can't. <laughs> yeah, I can't see things that are real far away, and the light bothers me, but I could see all these other things. And uh, we then pass around simulator glasses so all the other kids could understand how he sees, 
And it's been really, really good because it also kind of makes the kid a star, you know? There's so much attention brought to this that the kid sort of feels like he's a star. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, Yeah, I think think educate the more the more education um, that happens, obviously, the better. And certainly, if if a child is composed and has self confidence, and we try to build their self confidence, um, and certainly, um, you know, just um, sessions where we, we just talk about the situation is helpful. I mean, many, many of these children can become early achievers and, and certain things that can impress their classmates, but just being able to be comfortable talking about it to, to the classmates and uh, not, you know, feeling ashamed or embarrassed, uh, if they can develop those social skills, that can certainly go a long ways to overcoming this problem. Yeah, I I completely agree, and and we also have to spend that type of time to uh, inform the parents. Parents often think, does this mean, does my child have to learn to read and write Braille in order to go to school? I'm certain they ask you that all the time, Doctor Twanzi. Yeah, I I don't uh, you know I I do spend a lot of time with parents reassuring them that the child is going to have the ability to read and to um, achieve higher education. Um, I mean, I I have several physician colleagues that have ocular cutaneous albinism and ocular albinism. Um, So there's really um, very few things that they cannot achieve in life. And that is so true. Also, another thing that I have learned you know, we might see an adult who has a eye disease such as, uh, let's say, macular degeneration, and their vision might be 20 over 200. But we might see a child who was born with ocular cutaneous albinism, and their vision is 2200. And when you see how each person performs things, the child born with that kind of low vision functions so much better, don't they? Oh, absolutely. You, you cannot, I mean, most of these children, uh, if you watch them in a playground or you watch them play, uh, you know, a game of marbles or something like that, or, uh, you know, watch them on, on a, on a uh, you know, let's say they're playing a, a game of ball or something. I mean, they do amazingly well. And if you're not noticing their skin or looking at their eyes, you're not going to distinguish them from other children. I mean, they they take what they have and they make maximal use of it, and they are very impressive. Um, so from a functional perspective, um, you know, they may have some limitation in terms of driving or, you know, things where, um, you know, operating heavy machinery or something like that. But short of that, uh, they can pretty much do everything in terms of reading, um, in terms of, uh, you know, functional vision. It's, it's quite excellent. Yes. And, you know, if they need a little help, we have glasses that can magnify the print so they could read uh, their books. 
if they're working on the computer, we have glasses. They could see things on the computer. We even have software programs for the computer that could magnify things. There's just so much technology that's available. It's absolutely amazing. Now, now sometimes what we do, Dr. Twanzi, is that some kids, they say, well, I wish that I didn't have to wear glasses, and we will even fit them with tinted contact lenses. Oh, yeah. That's a bad, those are very effective. Um, um, you know, but, I mean, you, you get rid of the uh, Coke bottle-shaped glasses, mm-hmm. and you get a very effective uh, you know, decrease in the amount of light that gets in. Uh, that's a very good way to go, and I've recommended that quite a bit. Yes, I mean, it, it really makes a difference, and I, I know for myself, it just happened to be that when I was a first grader, I was prescribed glasses for nearsightedness, and every year they got a little thicker, a little thicker. And by the time that I was in 10th grade, I thought, my gosh, these glasses are getting so thick. And my, my dad bought me contact lenses, and it just changed my life. Just... <laughs> it changed your career, I bet, too. <laughs> yes. I, I just thought, wow, you know, I'm a regular person. I'm cool now, you know. <laughs> I love those contact lenses. <laughs> yeah, they're a, they're a very powerful tool. Um, and obviously, they need to be uh, worn properly and, and cared for properly. But, um, you know, I mean, the contact lens technology keeps us advancing, and I'm, and I'm so glad that, that I have colleagues like yourself that can handle that for me because I certainly can't manage those myself. Oh, I'm, I'm certain that you can. It's just you have so many patients all over the state that <laughs> you don't have time for anything else. Yeah. But I wanted to also ask you another question that relates to the parents. I remember specifically a family, and this was a very, very nice family. Um, the family, they were immigrants to the United States. They came from Asia. And they had a little baby daughter, and she was so adorable, but she had albinism. Mm-hmm. And the next time that I saw that child, mom had dyed her eyelashes, mom had dyed her eyebrows, she dyed her hair black. She did all of these things so that she would look like a typical Asian child. And believe me, it was the worst-looking thing ever. You know, it didn't look like oh a like Asian child. It was, it was just terrible. Um, what do you tell parents when they go to some of these extremes? Wow. Yeah, that's, um, you know, <laughs> I, I would suggest to the mom that, that she dye her hair blonde so that she, you know, so that she shows her daughter that this is perfectly acceptable, you know. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, sometimes they encourage kids to patch, the, the parents patch their eyes. Uh, I mean, you know, that that is, is uh, unfortunately how, you know, some people think, and that just takes a ton of education. Um and, uh, you know, that type of, uh, uh, it, you know, it's, it's common in certain cultures 
where uh, you know th- there's a shame or an embarrassment, and sometimes these families want to give the child up because they they're so uh, they feel helpless and um, embarrassed, and uh, they feel um, a stigma associated with this child, and that is just um, something that, you know, we, we can educate them and try to uh, reverse these thought processes, but they're totally in, ingrained in certain cultures, so it's really difficult, um, but, you know, we do rely on, you know, groups like the Institute for Families, like your organization, um, like my nurses, and, you know, uh, we do spend a lot of time, uh, and eventually, over a period of, you know, many months with many sessions, uh, you can start to change the way families feel about these children. But it is um, unfortunate that these perceptions exist, and, um, you know, the more uh, we can battle them, uh, you know, certainly the better, but uh, it's just a lot of work at this point. Well, this is this is why we're so thankful to you, Dr. Tawansi, for coming on these programs like this, so that we could begin to educate the entire world. And I could tell you from my own personal experience here in Los Angeles, California, that within many specific ethnic cultures. These cultures, they will hide their child who is visually impaired or if their child has cerebral palsy or that their child has a birth defect. They don't take these children out of the home because they are embarrassed. And we we hope that we can educate them and we we see some major changes, especially here in uh, little Tokyo of Los Angeles. There's Uh a, a, a very large group of Japanese immigrants who have gotten together with their children with vision problems, hearing problems, autism, cerebral palsy, and they get together and they work so hard for their kids to go to school, get educated, have funds and friendships. I mean, it's it's so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, these kids are all delightful to be with. Um, you know, it's wonderful when they are in social situations. And I certainly enjoy being with them and, and playing with them in the clinic as much as I can and hanging out with them. Uh, and it's just a shame if, uh, you know, they have some type of disability and it just gets compounded into a major life problem uh, if the child is not handled appropriately and um, allowed to socialize and integrate and develop bonds and friendships and so forth. Uh, I mean, that, that is just uh, a, a cruel punishment uh, for a child who has so, you know, all these children have amazing potential. Um, and all of them can be a lot of fun. And, and uh, uh, you know, it's, um, it's it's great when, when they are integrated with, you know, certain Certain families can handle this extremely well, and they 
um, others not so well, but, but with education, um, you know, that can make a big difference. That's right. Now, what about this other condition that sounds very familiar, but it's called ocular albinism? What's the difference between yes. ocular albinism and oculocutaneous albinism? Well, they're, close, they're closely related diseases in that uh, both of them are associated with uh, pigmentary changes, but ocular albinism is, uh, is an X-linked disease, and just like the name says, it, it, it involves uh, the eyes. Um, some of them can have slightly hypopigmented skin, but it's predominantly an ocular problem, uh, and it's X-linked, meaning that it's on the X chromosome, so that um, males are affected, and because males only have one X chromosome, so if that chromosome has a defect, and the defect is in the ocular albinism gene, um, then they will manifest the condition, whereas females have two X chromosomes, and typically a female can be a carrier, and if she's a carrier, then she will uh, pass on the gene to uh, um, you know, half of the, her siblings, so, so half of the daughters will be carriers, half the sons will be affected, but uh, females can have... Um, some manifestations of this condition uh, because sometimes there's random uh, inactivation of, of uh, the X chromosome. So, you know, the, the fact that patients have very hypopigmented retinas, whereas the carriers can have some patchy hypopigmentation. But the, the eye features are very similar in ocular albinism versus oculocutaneous. Uh, like I said, the, the, the patients are are males, but they have the same features of the, the early nystagmus, the iris transillumination defects, the uh, hypoplasia of the fovea, and the aberrant um, crossing at the chiasm. Uh, most the, the photosensitivity, uh, those things are all um, present. But sometimes it's harder to diagnose these children uh, because uh, they don't have the obvious skin manifestations. And so it's, it's often me, the eye examiner, who's making the first diagnosis. Um, of ocular albinism, as opposed to oculocutaneous, which is pretty obvious from birth, That's and it's more diagnosed by the pediatrician. Um, there are also some, with, with ocular albinism, there's a couple of specific disorders that can be associated with systemic problems that are important to realize. Uh, one of them is called Hermansky-Hudluck syndrome, and 
the other one is called Shidaic Higashi syndrome. These are specific defects in the X chromosome associated with these forms that are associated with uh, bleeding disorders and infections, and uh, these are more rare, uh, but it's important to recognize them because they can be actually lethal um, if they're not managed appropriately. Wow, that's great to know. I, I, I had never heard about those. I remember the first time that I examined a boy, and the boy's mother said he has albinism, and I, I just thought to myself, what what is she talking about? This boy doesn't have albinism. But when I then looked in the eye, it was so amazing. The inside of the eye didn't have that normal pigmentation. And it was the first time I experienced it. And everything about him was just like other children with albinism. And we fit him with tinted glasses and the visual aids. And, and he did extremely well. So the prognosis is very, very good. But we do need to be aware of these other syndromes. Yes. Now, Dr. Twanzi, in terms of with uh, children who, who do have oculocutaneous albinism and ocular albinism, uh, do you ever refer them to these groups called NOAA, National Organization of Albinism and Hypopigmentation? Um. Yeah, most of them have already heard of the groups and, and contacted them um, when I come to see them. Um, so certainly I think those groups are important. Uh, they're important for, uh, number one, giving uh, families an opportunity to share their experiences with one another and, um, you know, they, they learn things that are helpful and how to cope with certain situations, and then they learn from one another. I think that's important. Number two, these groups are um, often, in, you know, very up on the cutting research that's going on uh, with, you know, any type of, yeah. genetic trials or, uh, you know, they're very much plugged in with the National Institute of Health. And, um, you know, they they can sometimes, uh, you know, help organize research studies even on, on that on that level. I, I've seen that happen with, with support groups. But it, it's, uh, it's always, I think, good for these families to get together uh, with one another uh, just so they realize that they're not alone in this world and that there are other families that are um, just like them. And and certainly if you go to these meetings, there's like universal acceptance and no one thinks of it as a disability. And it's I think it's good for the children and the families to have some quality time like that together. So there's all kinds of advantages of, of these organizations. Um, I, 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 I agree with that. I, I remember the first time I was invited to go to the NOAA, N-O-A-H, to speak. And I really, you know, was just starting practice, and I, I really hadn't seen too many children with uh, albinism. 
and it was at the Disneyland Hotel, and I, I was kind of nervous about this event. What's it yeah. going to be like? And when I got there, there's just all of these kids with albums are running and playing, and they're in the pool, and they're just having the time of their life. You know, their their visual condition had nothing to do with the fun they were having. I said, oh, my God, this is going to be a great conference. Do you have yeah. time to answer a few questions? I know you have a few more yeah, questions I'd love to. there, but can we no open problem. up the calls? Okay, great. Sure. Uh, if any of you have questions for Dr. Tawanzi, you may unmute your phone by pressing star six, and you can introduce yourself and ask uh, him any questions. <clears throat> Thank you, Dr. Tawanzi. All right, thanks, I'd, I'd love to ask a couple questions. <laughs> um, my name is Shay Moore. I'm actually a family practice doc, and my four-year-old was diagnosed with oculocephalus albinism this week. Mm. Um, and basically, I have a couple questions. She luckily fits in great with the family. We're white as could be. My husband has had melanoma in situ at the age of 35, you know, so we've always been sun Nazis. <laughs> Um, but my so she was, she was diagnosed at the age of four uh, because you correct. guys are all very thin-skinned, uh, and it wasn't really realized. Um, correct. And this she, is despite despite the fact that at six months old, I took her to an ophthalmologist because she was so photo-averse, um, hmm. and asked the question. You know, she doesn't seem to be, you know. Her eyes shake a little bit, et cetera. And, and so an adult ophthalmologist missed this diagnosis. Um, and so I have a couple questions. One, it sounds like the diagnosis is primarily clinical. And are there genetic tests well, that confirm it? Or? Gen- genetic testing is not that commonly done. Uh, but one test that is commonly done um, it, to kind of confirm the diagnosis is the visual evoked potential. Um, and uh, that can pretty much rule it in or, or out because if you do the special form of visual evoked potential where you cover one eye and do the, do the test and measure the occipital response and if you get a great response on the contralateral occipital cortex and a, and a, a very diminished uh, response on the isolateral cortex, then that pretty much uh, clinches the diagnosis. There's there's no other condition that causes that type of asymmetry in the decussation at the chiasm. So that's a very good um, test that's available at most universities um, and can help, uh, you know, sure, uh, make the diagnosis. Do you think, um, and we are also military, so basically when I have a family member that has a condition that's limiting, then it limits where I can be sent for my job. Um, and that's based on the type of specialist and frequency that she needs to be seen. And so... My my other question was: Is it necessary for her going forward to see a peds off though because it's not progressive, um, or is that more of like a 
yeah, it would be nice, but you could still go to Germany and see an adult ophthalmologist. <laughs> well, fortunately, there are pediatric ophthalmologists throughout the world. Um, you know, I, I know they may, may not be in uh, in military camps, or, or uh, but I mean, for example, uh, we see lots of military. Uh, families that get referred to us, they usually have TRICARE uh, as their insurance. And I think I think you can get that all over the world, actually, um, referrals to pediatric ophthalmology. They don't have to, these children don't have to be seen that often. Usually once a year is adequate. But in terms of um, managing nystagmus, managing the refractive condition, um, you know, uh, managing their strabismus, it's good to have an annual eye exam, not necessarily by pediatric ophthalmologist, but someone who's, you know, fairly familiar. Um, I mean, there's certain adult ophthalmologists or retina specialists that can also uh, manage this condition, but they need to have, to have a, you know a certain level of comfort with it with the with it. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you very very much. Thank Let's you. see. Does any anybody else have a question for Doctor Tawanzi? Yes, I would like to know. There is is Waleska. There is any other treatment than the contact lenses to improve the vision or or the movement of the eyes? Yeah, in terms of the movement of the eyes, the nystagmus, uh, like I said, it usually gets a little bit better as uh, the child grows older. There are um, procedures that are done to, number one, to reset the null point so that uh, the null point is, is in the direction of gaze where the nystagmus is the least. And sometimes that can be off to one side. If that's the case, the child will develop a head tilt or a head turn uh, so that they can be using their null point in their primary gaze. But uh, And obviously that can be debilitating. So one can do strabismus surgery to reset the null point to neutrality so that the null point is when they're looking straight ahead. Uh, that's a common thing that we do. And then um, in terms of nystagmus procedures, procedures just to reduce shaking, um, there, you know, there isn't a, a foolproof way to do that, but there have been lots of um, innovations in uh, nystagmus procedures. And um, there are actually some new techniques that have been developed even within the last year on managing nystagmus with strabismus uh, surgery. Uh, you know, previously it used to be just recession of the lateral rectus muscles, but now some more creative techniques are out there. And um, although I can't say that they're universally uh, 100% successful, I have seen some dramatic improvements and nystagmus with some of the, the techniques. So if it, if it turns out that nystagmus is really 
a major feature in a child or, or an adult and it's limiting their visual function, it's certainly worth exploring surgery for that. Do the vision improve with that or not? Well, yeah. Usually, uh, you know, if, you'll see, if you see a child with nystagmus, um, when the nystagmus gets worse, the visual function gets worse, and sometimes they'll have good days and bad days. So, um, yes, uh, correcting nystagmus will improve vision. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. Thank you very much. Okay, we have time for one more question for Dr. Twanzi. Does anybody else have a question for Dr. Twanzi? Uh, hello, it's Bruce calling from uh, Victoria, and I was wanting to inquire further about uh, field loss. Would that relate, for the most part, to the null point, or is there also uh, some associated field loss? The visual field exam can be a little bit bizarre because, you know, basically, because of this, it, 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 not, it doesn't relate necessarily to the null point, but to this accusation that occurs uh, asymmetrically. So if you, you know, normally um, to get stereopsis in good visual field, you have um, both sides of the occipital cortex getting information from both eyes. And uh, when you get only, you know, the right brain getting information from the left eye and the left brain getting information from the right eye. That causes, um, well, it, it increases the tendency for strabismus and also causes um, very irregular uh, field exams. Um, so, and there isn't really much to do about that. Okay, great. Well, that that's uh, another reason that we want to have all the kids receive a, a good functional assessment so we know what is their peripheral vision, and if they are in need, they may benefit from some orientation mobility training to help them to see better. we got the visual aids. We have the assistive technology. Uh, there's new developments in surgery for the nystagmus, so everything looks really, really great. Well, we again want to thank you very much, Dr. Twansey, for your time. And if anybody wants to email you a question or call you to schedule an appointment or just a consultation, uh, how can they get in touch with you? Okay. Uh, well, uh, my email is k twansey, K-T-A-W-A-N-S-Y, at com. And my cell phone is 323-313-5757. And I don't mind if you send me text messages or uh, call me like before or after clinic. I, I have no problem with that. So. <laughs> okay. Oh, you're thank you're you. amazing. Well, thank, thank you very you. much for that. And, Sue, thank you very much for putting on this program this evening. No, thank you all. Thank you both. It was great. I appreciate appreciate your time, and I hope you're not working too late, Dr. Tawanti. <laughs> no, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. Okay. Have a great night, Kate. Good night, Dr. Tawanti. And we also Bye-bye. like to thank Mr. Dick Burden from Airs LA. Mm-hmm. This will be available 
at uh, www.airsla, that's www.airsla.org, and also at uh, www.brailleinstitute.org. Uh, so again, thank you so much to all of you for joining us this evening. We hope mm-hmm. to see you at the CTEBVI conference in April, and uh, mm-hmm. we'll also look forward to seeing you next month. 